Hello listeners, my name is Arno and I'm the founder of Revelator Studio. Welcome to the Truth is Golden podcast. This show is about creative minds and the secret sauce behind their success. It is for people who are interested to learn about creativity and its potential to make the world a better place. In this episode, I am talking to Ian French, also known as If the Poet, a former direct marketer turned spoken word artist. We talked about the inadequacy of traditional schooling, hip-hop, and death as a catalyst for change. My name is If the Poet, a.k.a. Ian French. I do what I call spoken word poetry or performance poetry, also known as slam poetry, which is basically poetry that is written to be performed live. And I also do speaking, um, usually under things that fall around what I call the art of the open heart. So how did you came about to be a spoken word poet? Wow. I became a spoken word poet completely by accident. I've always had some creative outlet. Usually it was songwriting. Uh, that's what I sort of practiced initially. And then at about age 50, I started trying to write. I, I, I Basically, I was listening to a lot of hip hop music because I was trying to stay involved in my son's life. And I was astounded by how they had changed the game of lyrics in a positive way. Like they just completely flipped it. So I started trying to write in that vein. But obviously, I can't rap. But that kind of led through a really obscure route into somebody telling me about this thing called spoken word poetry. And I went down to the Drake Hotel in Toronto, where the Toronto Poetry Slam is held, and got up and performed. And I was hooked right away, and I've been doing it ever since. And that was about six, seven years ago. And I spent the first bunch of years just really, really trying to hone the craft and the turn for me came when I made the Toronto Poetry Slam team. It was a team competition and our coach was a gentleman by the name of Ian Ketiku, who was a former world champion and Canadian champion. And under his tutelage, our team won the Canadian championship and I asked him if he would work with me to compete for the Canadian championship, which he did. And I managed to win that. And then we went to Paris and competed in the World Cup of Slam, where I came in third. But it was a great learning experience. And that was really my journey in competitive performance, which I no longer do. So do you consider yourself a hip-hop fan? I'm a fan. I wouldn't consider myself extremely knowledgeable. And I think I'm really out of touch of what's going on today. But there was a period where... I was listening to a lot of stuff, you know, maybe, you know, primarily in the, what I would call the conscious hip hop, you know, common and Naz and that kind of stuff. But, you know, I think you're always hooked on the music that you grew up with, which for me was not hip hop. I, I'm a huge admirer, especially lyrically. I, I think they just completely flipped the script and people who are particularly my age who don't know hip hop and they can't really relate to it. They can't even sort of hear it. They can't make out the words, I think, have dismissed it as a genre without realizing how lyrically complex and innovative and interesting it is. I, I can't agree more with you. I'm, I'm a big hip hop fan, so I'm kind of happy to hear that. So who would be your favorite MC? Well, the group I admire the most is The Roots, and I would have to say that Black Thought is my favorite rapper. I, I just can't think of... Uh, a verse that the guy ever dropped that wasn't great. 
you know, and I think obviously arguments can be made about who's technically more proficient or who's faster. But, you know, I try to look at it as the whole package, what he says, how he says it, the music that it's couched in, everything. So he's kind of my stand. He's certainly up there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're going to switch topics completely. Yeah. But what were you like as a kid? Oh, what was I like as a kid? I was awful. Uh, you know, we had we uh, God, we had uh, four kids within five years. And my father, you know, like everybody that generation was working all the time. The house was chaotic. I mean, there was no, I didn't have a bad childhood in the sense of, you know, there was no violence. Our parents were, were good people and loving. Um, it was just super chaotic. And then for me, problems really hit when I went to school because I had uh, ADHD. And also I think a personality was just didn't lend itself to sitting down and shutting up. So school right away was a problem. And I don't think I enjoyed a single moment. Hated it. Can you go a little deeper into why? What do you disliked about it? Well, I, you know, it's a bizarre, I think it's a really interesting thing that learning, which is something everybody wants to do. I think everybody's born with this, you know, instant, like you look at kids, they're instantly trying to absorb everything, trying to learn new shit. And then we put them in this sort of factory setting where we try to force feed them at a certain rate and certain things at a certain time that may or may not, they may not be developmentally ready for, they may have no interest in, and it's done in a regimented sit down, shut up, listen and repeat back when asked atmosphere. And it destroys for many people the desire to learn. And for me, I was basically always getting in trouble. So I ended up always getting into detention and just immediately had this feeling of falling behind and, you know, I never really ever caught up uh, until, you know, just by a miracle that I made it into university. And then I was able to pick my own classes. Um, so I was able to do things that I wanted to do. But the whole system at school was just soul crushing. And you just have a, such a negative impression of yourself and your own abilities. And that really played havoc with my self-esteem. And, you know, I kind of got in all kinds of trouble. I got into trouble with the cops and, you know, drugs and alcohol and all that good shit. And um, it was just a very debilitating experience. So was the university who, that allowed you to get out of that? Yeah, I think university a bit. I took three years off between high school and university. And basically, you know, school ended on Friday. I was in Alberta on Tuesday, you know, got a job away from home working and, and, you know, just put the school thing behind me. And, you know, I found I actually could do things. I could actually, you know, take care of myself and I could make a contribution and, 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 that's, and that sort of thing. And then, of course, I met uh, the person who's my partner today and love, especially, you know, it sounds very cliche, but when someone else sees value in you and appreciates you and encourages you, it, can, it really can have a transformative effect. And I think that was really what started me you know, on the, on the track of, you know, turning things around. And also I have a, you know, low threshold for, for mental pain. And I was in a lot of mental pain and I was, you know, so I was always, I was always interested in, you know, how can I change that? How can I improve? How can I get happier? And yeah, so all those things come on. So if we backtrack a few years, uh, what would have been your dream job as a kid, if any? You know, I don't even think I had a dream job as a kid. I, I you know, I, and that was one of the problems is when I looked at the world, when I looked out as a kid, I couldn't see anything, A, that I would be any good at or B, that anyone would hire me for or C, that I would really want to do. And 
it was just, you know, my fallback position was to be a lawyer. So I wrote the LSAT and I passed and I was going to go to law school because at least there, you know, my thought was, depending on the type of lawyer you are, and I was thinking, you know, sort of a defense lawyer that I would be independent, you know, I could sort of stand up for people's rights. I wouldn't have a boss, probably none of which was particularly true, but that was my, that was my sort of vision. Um, but fortunately, by a strange thing of quint a strange set of circumstances, my brother asked me if, if I wanted to go into business, literally turned to me at the middle of the seminar we were in and said, you know, do you want to start a business? I was like, sure. What, what are you thinking? He said, television. I said, great, let's do it. I knew nothing about television, never owned a camera, never did anything. And we basically started literally doing weddings, bar mitzvahs, minor hockey games, parties, and and we kind of just grew that into, then we ended up, we managed to get a couple of cheap television commercials. And then we developed an expertise in direct response marketing. And, you know, voila, we just sold the business, you know, 30 odd years later. And it was, uh, you know, very successful. In fact, the largest independent direct marketing company in Canada. So it was just by pure fluke. That's if career, you believe in flukes. And that's a <laughs> 30 year or so career. Yeah. How uh, creative was that from your perspective? Well, this may be disappointing for anyone, but it, it, like I have a very different, different definition of creativity than most people. Most people really think of creativity as something that's focused on the art that you're creating. But I, I think, I think everything is creative. I think raising kids is creative. I think how you organize your life, you know, the decisions you make, like you were telling me before the interview about deciding to leave France and you know, that's a courageous and creative act. I'm going to change it up, you know, come to Canada to do something different. So I, I think creativity covers a lot broader area than we give it credit for. We try to confine it into the arts. So it was very creative in the sense of I had to learn everything, how to deal with clients, how to deal with employees, how to deal with a business that was growing, you know, how to, how to manage that with the family and plus how to create television commercials. But the way that you're asking the question is about the creativity of the commercials itself. Because it was direct marketing, I spent a lot of time trying to make it as uncreative as possible because in direct marketing, clarity, simplicity of message always trump creativity. So I was always working on how to find a very simple, clear, effective way to communicate the message and not to try and turn it into art, but to turn it into effective communication. That could arguably be described as creative as well, mm -hmm. in the sense of you're trying to fulfill a certain brief. But right. um, just for our listeners that may not know what direct marketing is, can you just describe sure. it yeah, that sentence? Yeah. So direct marketing is basically marketing that is designed to elicit an immediate or direct response from the viewer. Mm -hmm. So it could be a direct mail letter that's asking you to donate to a charity. It could be an ad with a 1-800 number or URL asking you to buy insurance. Or again, we, we did lots in the, in the development world. So, you know, so donate to save animals or whatever that may happen to be. But it's advertising or marketing that is designed to give you enough information right at that time so that you are willing to make a decision or move to the next step rather than sort of advertising a Coke where the idea is you'll think about it when you're in the store. This is to get that immediate response out of you. 
Yeah, Coke is an interesting example because they sell fuzzy feelings. Yeah, they don't absolutely. sell anything else. Yeah, and that's why direct marketing is never used for kind of lifestyle products because direct marketing is more about information, more about benefits, more about features. It's more about content. So things like alcohol or Coke or luxury cars that are really a lifestyle, sort of an emotional conception don't work. So jumping back to the spoken word yes. and uh, the more creative aspect of your life, I guess. What is your creative process like, if you have any? Yeah, it, what is the creative process? That's a really tough question to answer. I, I tell you the way it happens for me, I think is for, for the poetry, for the spoken poetry, if, if, if I get an idea and then I get a couple of lines, there, you know, from there, then I can sort of, I, I, it's hard to describe, but maybe because your architect, architectural background, this is a good analogy. It's like, <laughs> I suddenly have a foundation that I can build on. Like there's some, there's a structure, there's a form there, there's an idea there. And then once I have an idea, usually I can bring that idea to fruition. Sometimes not, doesn't work, you have to throw it out. But, you know, like, like for example, my most recent poem, which is called You Never Said Goodbye, which is about suicide, was a subject I wanted to sort of deal with in a poem for a long time, but I could never find the right avenue. And then one day the, the phrase just popped in my head. Yesterday, a dear friend of mine said goodbye, only he never said goodbye. Just help me. And that sort of just as simple as it is, that kind of doorway was was what I needed to start constructing the poem. So really for me, it's about having an idea first, what, what, what's the subject matter? And then I just need a couple of lines which point me in a direction. So where do you find inspiration from those ideas, for those ideas? Uh, you know, I find inspiration, like most people I think who do spoken word poetry or slam poetry pull most of their ideas and inspiration from politics or social justice, generally speaking. Those are the, you know, sort of gay rights and, you know, gender rights and um, issues of violence against blacks and minorities. Those occupy a lot of what goes on in spoken word and, and rightfully so. But, you know, I'm white, privileged, middle-aged, middle-class. So, you know, although I was obviously aware of those things, that's what I really tried to do is just stay true to what I knew. So the stuff that I wrote about and still continue to write about are things that happened in my or are happening in my personal life. You know, I wrote about growing up with a learning disability, with ADHD, having children, having uh, parents who are aging and dying, uh, marriage, marriage counseling, you know, those those sort of things. But interestingly, even those those experiences are not unique to me, but my personal experiences, because we're really talking about human relationships and human growth and human potential and human frailty and human possibilities, I believe the poems resonate with people, even if they don't have kids or don't have aging parents or aren't married, or they seem to be able to cross a boundary and connect with people on an emotional level. And, and I, I'm very thankful you said that because I find that in my case, and I'm sure it's true of many people, inspiration comes from personal experiences. It's something very personal to me. My mom passed away a couple months ago. Yeah. 
And I found beyond the sadness and uh, mourning and all that stuff, I found inspiration to do other things. So is that something that you would agree with? I, I, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, all of these things kind of touch us in, in very different ways. And, and especially, the you know, the parental relationship. Many people have done, and it's interesting, especially artists have done things that they weren't even able to do when their parents were alive. They're just because of that relationship. And when they died, they went a completely different direction. And, and I think even if you don't have a parent who has died, you're aware of that possibility and that reality hovers. And because we're such a death-denying culture, you know, sort of stories about death really do resonate with people because they really force us to think about something that we're, we've kept suppressed for so long. And I think it's an idea that's ripe for disruption, for lack of a better word. Yeah. In the sense of that death-denying culture that you've described is very much around us, but there's people out there that are doing other things. And I recently discovered a festival in Australia called We All Going to Die. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's an arts and social sciences and lots of other things festival around the fact it's a celebration of life. Right. But the, right. the name of the festival right. is. And it, yeah. And if I could interrupt, I, I think that is, that is what makes death so potent is that it reminds you of the, depending on how you want to look at it. I look at it as the sacredness or the value or the preciousness of life. And if you think about it, I don't know if you've ever played penny ante poker where, you know, you have a bunch of pennies and you're playing poker. It, it's awful because there's no risk. There's no reward. You don't care. You bet on every hand. doesn't matter. But when you play real poker with real money, suddenly you pay attention, you're focused, you're engaged. And that's the way, that's what death does to life is it makes you go, holy fuck, this is going to end. And the, and the people I love, it's going to end for them too. And I think that is, that, that's, you know, I, I actually have a poem called Dear Death, which I, where, where I kind of basically say that death is God's best friend because he, it basically forces us to realize the, the preciousness of the situation that we're in. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that by acknowledging death existence and embracing it, and the fact that it's going to happen at some point makes us, uh, it makes people enjoy life better and, and do things that are more important as well. Yeah. You know, yes. It gives you a sense of purpose. And yeah. I don't know if you have a family, maybe you build a legacy for your kids or you have a business and you want to do something that lasts beyond your lifetime. And I find those ideas fascinating because once I personally embrace that, very recently, as I discussed earlier, and I find that it makes life easier in some strange, circumvoluted manner in the sense of that it's not a something that we want to avoid it at, the, at all cost anymore. It's just there. You know, it's like anything in your life that's there, you just kind of embrace it. So I find that fascinating. And I am kind of pushing people to go that direction more because yep. I think it would it would make society in general or mankind better if we were able to acknowledge death yeah. and live with it. I, I agree a hundred percent. And I and I think, you know, we talk about being a death denying culture. It's also at the point where, you know, I, I had dinner actually in Montreal with a friend of mine two nights ago. 
And he was basically telling me how terrible it was when he was at his father's deathbed. And he was going to make sure that his kids weren't at his deathbed. And I had the exact opposite experience. I was, and I, I was basically trying to convince him that we don't see elderly people getting old and dying in our midst anymore. They're kind of isolated and put in homes. And, you know, the sick are taken off to hospitals. We're, we're, we're so divorced from such an important thing. And, you know, I, I watched my mother die. She broke her hip. She stopped eating and she took seven weeks to die in a hospital bed. And, you know, we were there every day and talking to her every day. And, you know, I, I cherish that that process, right? It was uh, it, it, in ways that are impossible to describe. Seeing somebody die, for me anyway, was extraordinarily life affirming. And it, it, as you pointed out, it makes you recommit to what is important in life. Mm -hmm. I, I had a very similar experience. And um, what really personally helped me go through that is seeing the legacy that my mother lived, right. left behind. She, what, do you, what do you mean by legacy? Well, so she had a very long, successful career, and not in the traditional sense of making a lot of money. Right. She was just a leader in her field, right. basically, and she taught deaf kids how to speak. Yeah. Very novel cause, because in the long term, it's giving a life to those kids. Right. You know, they can right. function in society right. by speaking, right. they can go to university, they can have a family. Something as simple as paying yeah. bills. And when I saw dozens of those kids that are adult, adults now, for the most part, a lot of them are around my age, coming out and say, your mom changed my life. It right. was like, holy shit. Yeah, that's, and I think that's exactly it. And that is what, you know, that is, to my mind, a life well lived. You know, your mother, I, I assume that she loved it, but you think of the ripple effect of that. And how many people were touched, the parents of those kids, and now they're adults, the, the, the kids of those kids. Mm -hmm. You know, it's incredible. You know, and, and, and I think, to my mind, it also brings, it also makes me think of one of the things I try to get at in my poetry is what I think is the, the inherent goodness of people. You know, that people do a lot of bad things, but usually they're doing bad things out of good intentions. You know, they think that they're somehow going to right the situation or they're so hurt they're just trying to inflict their own anguish onto other people but inherently people are good otherwise it wouldn't be people like your mother dedicating their lives without you know huge financial reward to helping other people you know you wouldn't have you wouldn't have charities you wouldn't have like oh but we have we live under this illusion fostered by you know a lot of political groups and, and that people and fostered of course by religion that people are inherently bad and, and I think that skews everything, skews the way we see the world. And, you know, that's in my work, I try to, I'm always trying to push the idea that life is a celebration and that people are inherently good. And having heard a few of your poems already, I can, I can see that in your work. Would you say that there is a potential to impact people beyond just the artistry of writing poems and you could change people's lives somehow? Well, I don't know if poetry changes people's lives, but I believe we're all changed bit by bit. You know, I, I think that we change literally with every, with every breath we take, you know, we change. And I know I've changed slowly over time. And, you know, I like to think that certain things I've read or experienced, certain artistic things have moved me. But, 
you know, again, I, I'm always trying to communicate with people on, I'm always trying to get past the ego into this kind of, you know, emotional slash spiritual area when, when, when I'm talking with people. So, or when I'm performing. And I think at that level, people recognize certain basic truths, you know, and when you, when you speak those truths, you re reawaken those ideas in them. And, and that's really what, what I, what I try to do. Does it change people's lives? I, I you know, I don't know. I, I would never make that claim, but I, I think it, it inspires and motivates people to potentially leave that room as better people than they were before. So if you can't say whether you're actually impacting people's life, is that something you would aspire to? Absolutely. Yeah. I, but you know, I, I think, but I try to do that on two levels. I try to do that through the art. Like there are poems, for example, one of, probably one of the first and best poem I ever wrote, which was called Teen Hunters, which was really in, inspired by my son, but plus the killing of Sammy Yatim by Toronto police. But I don't do it anymore because although I, I'm very, very concerned about the issue of police violence against youth and against people of color, I think the issue is much deeper than just demonizing the cops, although they are certainly deserving of, of a fair bit of that. I'm not going to disagree yeah. with you. So, but I stopped doing that poem because I just felt it wasn't advancing the game at all. Mm -hmm. All it was doing is saying that person's bad. And it's really not about that person. It's, it's about the system. It's about the beliefs that they have. It's not that black and white. I think I forgot the original question, but I try to make every poem I do something I would stand behind and that's something if somebody heard it, you know, they could take it literally or metaphorically and, and use it in a way that is positive. So I think right now would be the perfect time to uh, maybe demonstrate some of your okay. poetry. Okay, so this poem is called um, You Never Said Goodbye. Yesterday, a dear friend of mine said goodbye. Only he never said goodbye. Just help me as we all sometimes do those gray glue stick afternoons and so softly. I didn't hear it over the rattle and hum of errands to run and things to get done. I'm sorry. Sorry I wasn't there last night for your last night. Sorry I couldn't bear witness to your unbearable demise. Sorry I can't turn back time and tell you what everyone but you already knew, that you were loved truly and deeply loved. But regret will not bring you back, nor change the fact that it was you who kicked the chair out from under your own life. You who put the noose around your neck. You were broken gorgeous, cracked mirror blind to your own beautiful, convinced life was as pointless as a canceled ball game and that happiness was for people too stupid to see the truth. The truth, my friend, the truth, my friend is that suicide is a sad, ugly little fuck. A garden of grief your children will harvest the rest of their lives. A selfie your future self will never see. The truth, my friend, is that I miss you so much. Thank you, that was amazing. I've heard it before, but every time I hear it, it's... Uh... Thanks, I flipped it. two of the sentences, but... <laughs> Nobody, <laughs> will <that> <laughs> Nobody will notice. Nobody will notice. What would you say poetry has brought into your life? Oh, man. Poetry has brought so much into my life. It's, it's unbelievable. 
um, you know, first off, it's given me an artistic expression, which I never had before, uh, and which I think I'm more competent at than I was at the other things I was doing, like, like songwriting and that sort of thing. So it's given me an art form to engage with and, and to try and move forward and advance and improve. So, you know, that in itself is hugely satisfying. It's also brought in, brought me in touch with so many other people, uh, you know, different cultures and ages and ethnicities. And, you know, the whole thing that the spoken word community embodies has been a huge gift to me, you know, and, and I've been able to perform in different places around the world and meet extraordinary people, you know, uh, on many levels, it's been it's been huge for me, and it's also allowed me to think about things in a in a, in a poetic way, you know. And, and my coach in Ketika really really taught me how to look at life more poetically, uh, you know, which I try to do. Um, so it's been hugely hugely enriching. Can you describe what is uh, what would looking at life more poetically is like? Well, I, I guess it's it's almost like I, I try to look at life, if you will, almost as if it's symbolic. So, you know, the health of your relationships or, or some is, is in any way symbolic of your belief systems and of your attitudes and and of you know where your energy's at, so to speak. So it's almost like I see things as a as as manifestations of deeper things. Mm-hmm. And that's really what I mean by symbolic. Like I think, you know, and use a present example, Donald Trump, you know, is not just a person to me. He represents, you know, certain ideas and certain conflicts that exist in society. You know, he represents fear, for example, and fear of change and, you know, people who prefer daddy knows best and, you know, hit them before they hit you. So again, I come back to this thing where it's not as simple to just demonize him as a person without trying to understand the context that gave him his, his reality. So that's what I mean when I try to look at life poetically. And the other part of that is just trying to find a way to communicate the nuances and the depth of it, you know, without trying to simplify it to the point where it doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. What you just said about Trump is very interesting because demonizing people like him actually give them more credibility. For sure. And, and, and plus, one of the things that I think we have to be aware of, and, and artists have to be aware of it especially, is that it's not hate of a particular group that's a problem, although that is a problem. It's hate, no matter who it's focused at. You know, so if you hate the hater, I mean, it, it's the same. It, it, you're not, you haven't done anything. You've just added to the problem. And... You know, I, I, you know, I've seen people talk about, you know, signs up about, you know, hate the Nazis or, you know, punch your local neighborhood neo-Nazi. And I understand, of course, where that's coming from and the motivation behind it. But I don't know who it was who said it. I don't know whether it was Einstein or Gandhi or somebody said, you can't solve a problem at the same level of consciousness that caused the problem. Mm-hmm. You have to go to a higher level of consciousness. And, and, you know, and it's very hard to do in these times because, you know, the, the fear that he arouses drags people into their own, you know, uh, attack and defense strategies. And that doesn't further the game. Yeah, it's very interesting. I, I can relate to that on a couple of different levels. I practice yoga almost every day mm-hmm. and the meditative aspect and practicing gratefulness for life whatever yeah. it is friends families yeah. 
enemies, people that yeah did something wrong to me yeah makes life more about uh, giving love and gratitude yeah and all of a sudden all that shit yeah really because it's yeah. just shit goes away so it's very interesting yeah you don't get dragged into it you don't become that thing right and that's what we've been doing for centuries you know that the, that the revolution isn't any better than what it replaced you know like that like it, you know it, it's it's a crazy crazy thing you know just as a complete aside uh, i don't know is um I, 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 I do some yoga, but whenever I do yoga, I always close my practice by sort of sitting on my knees and, and opening up my arms and imagining the whole world and bringing it into my heart, basically. And it's a weird thing because it's just an energetic thing, but I feel it like I physically feel it as you know, as a, and so, you know, I think we are on all these things working with energy and even 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 if you can't see it doesn't mean that it doesn't have an impact. I'm, I'm going to try that, actually. I haven't tried, so I've seen next time I go to yoga and practice. Embrace the world. That's yeah. a good, that's great metaphor, yeah. I think. Um, so you touched on uh, a couple times on uh, mentors of yours for right. poetry. Can you tell us a little more about them and what you get out of those relationships? Well, yeah, there's been a few. The first guy who took a, an interest in me was a, a gentleman by the name of Charles Roach, who's now deceased. But he was a lawyer, black lawyer, lived in Toronto. And he and Dudley Laws basically were the people really bringing to attention, uh, primarily responsible, the, the way that police were mistreating blacks and also helped create the, the board which oversees police activities. So a hugely, hugely important guy, you know, a major figurehead in the black community. And he used to run a poetry thing called Sundays at Ellington's. And I went in there once. It was the first time I'd ever done anything. He welcomed me up, encouraged me. And, you know, he was just a huge, just by virtue of encouraging. He didn't do anything to sort of teach me or anything like that. And then once I kind of got my feet in the spoken word scene, as I mentioned, I had the honor of being, our team was coached by Ian Ketiku, and he really taught me spoken word poetry. Like at that time, I had a natural talent, but I didn't really understand the genre or what could be done with it or where it could go. And he was the one that taught me to go to the places I was scared of. You know, one of the first questions he asked me was, you know, what are you most scared of? And I said, you know, something happening to my son. He said, write that poem. You know, that became Teen Hunters about the police and, and youth. And, you know, what, uh, the poem I have called Call It Love about marriage counseling, same thing. He pushed me to go into those areas, which I probably would have tried to avoid. And I had been avoiding. You know, he also taught me a lot of the craft of spoken word. And he's an amazing human being and the way that he lives his life and, you know, decisions that he's made. And he once said to me, you know, you want to be a better poet, you become a better person. And I, and I think that's fundamentally true. So Ian Ketiku has been the major poetic influence on my life. And I'm, I'm you know, proud to, you know, that I've known him in that capacity and that I know him as a friend. You could argue that to be better at anything, you'd have to be a better person. Yeah, I, yeah, you could. People usually don't think of it that way, but that's the way I think about it. And, you know, and I also believe, uh, you know, getting back to the whole issue of creativity and, and that sort of thing is... I believe that the most creative thing you will ever do is live your life. 
That's it. That's and you know to to what you were talking about with your mother, like that's she's going to have more impact on people and had more impact on people that a poem or a song, ultimately you know probably is going to do. So you know like to me my relationship with people my you know the way that I raised my son my relationship with my partner despite its you know ups and downs throughout the years, those things are very very important to me and I think artists especially can become hyper focused on the art. To the expense of you know the way they treat other people and the way they treat the world, and to my mind, again, that's not solving a problem. That's so that's trying to solve a problem at the level it's born at. I mean, you you have to bring that artistry to your life. I have a good analogy. I think for that is the way filmmaking has become this uncreative. Talking about Hollywood, obviously, right, right. has become this mostly uncreative endeavor. It's kind of recipes that right. are formulas yep. formulas that have been put out over and over and i personally find that most movies coming out of hollywood are all the same right it's it's become so jumbled up together it's hard for me to say oh is this different from this or, right and then there's the odd movie that's not a blockbuster or not a superhero or an right. action movie or any of that stuff that's pure entertainment but really without so much brain behind it or thinking and those movies stand out but the problem is most people don't get to see them because they don't have the marketing yeah. power of yeah so it's interesting i think to yeah. Uh, yeah. to see how some artists really just touch the surface and it's almost more about the way it looks and it feels right than the message or what it accomplishes right Yeah, and I, but I, and you know, and personally, I'm just like I, I don't think the idea of, of the tortured artist or or the artist who has to be an asshole all the time in order to get things done. I think that's bullshit. Right? I think that just shows a lack of control over your own life and your own creative process. Well, to circle back to hip hop and favorite MCs, <laughs> one of my heroes is Karis One. Right. You know him, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. And. He's my favorite rapper, and I think the best best MC that ever lived, arguably at least at the top. Yeah. But when you hear him speak, there's a lot of stuff going oh, on yeah. up here. Yeah, yeah. Who's another guy like that? Immortal Technique, right? Oh yeah, yeah, amazing. You know, that amazing. Lot, a lot of thought going on, and you know, I may not agree with everything that comes out, but it's I, you, you know, there's thinking. You know, he's got he he's. Nothing. It's not off the cuff. It's not done for, you know. There's depth behind it. Yeah. And this, his, immortal techniques art is very raw and very direct and in your face. But yeah, there's definitely a thinking. And yeah. I, I, the way he talks about the majors and actually Karis One talks about that too. How you don't have to be signed to a major label. Right. right. You don't have to sell right. a million right. copies right. to right. one make a career right. of it. And to have influence, because right. those guys, I don't know the numbers, but I'm pretty sure they live pretty well. Yeah, and I think Immortal Technique probably embodied that better than anyone, right? He mm -hmm. took control of that whole artistic process, which is something you know a lot of artists can't do. But yeah, he really lived it, yeah, for, or is living it, I guess. Cut out the middleman. That's yeah. uh, that's <laughs> what the game is about. I think that covers pretty much all the uh the topics i wanted to talk to you about um there's one more thing i wanted to it's not so much a question but kind of an observation i recently listened to a podcast where the guest was jason maiden 
he used to be the head designer of all the Jordan branded products at Nike. Oh, okay. And in that interview, he said that his ADD, specifically as a kid, but throughout his life, is a superpower that enabled him to really let his curiosity run wild and learn about so many things that he literally built his career as a designer from the ground up, not knowing anything about design, not having any connections, and ended up at, as a senior designer at Nike. What, uh, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's, that doesn't surprise me. Like it's like a lot of ADD, like a lot of challenges in life can, can be a gift or can be a curse, but you know, depending on how you deal with it, but what it does, like you talked about insatiable curiosity. I think that's a huge thing is, you know, your mind is always like looking around, trying to absorb things. And, and, you know, I, I'm stunned by people who find who, who are bored. Like, I don't know how you can ever get bored. And, you know, it, like there's, there's so much stuff going on in the world. There's so much things of interest. Like, you know, that's why we have multiple incarnations. You can't get it all done, man, in, in one run. But the other thing I would say about that is people misunderstand ADHD a lot in that they think that it's an inability to focus. But really what it is, it's, it's a, um, there's alternate levels of focusing. And, and people with ADHD can also hyper-focus. And, you know, so you have that ability to sort of be wide, you know, wide scan the environment and scan the world, but you also have the ability to drill down on something that interests you. You know, and as my wife will tell you, when I get something in my mind and, and I'm all focused on it, you know, it's kind of like the dog with a bone. So I could see how that could totally benefit him. That totally benefited me in, in my career and in poetry. You know, I, I was obsessed about spoken word poetry and, you know, I was doing it all in like just because you're you, you want to keep going so uh, yeah i totally get that so do you have like some tricks or tips to harness well your... yeah for I, I think you have to be in control of it uh, of the adhd and for my for me that's uh extra cardio you got to do cardio because you got to kind of burn off some of the excess energy it's also you know meditation it's for me, visualization, writing out my goals, knowing like, don't, don't allow myself to get too scattered on, on this big level. Like, what is it I'm trying to accomplish? Uh, I'm a big believer in lists because I try to, you know, scratch things off the list to get them done. And I have all kinds of techniques, like little tricks of stuff, you know, where I put my wallet so I don't lose it, you know, where I store things. So, you know, cause I'm so scattered that I'll, you know, I'll remember them and, and find them again. And, and you also, you know, I used to be embarrassed about it. And, and, you know, I still have a little bit of shame about it. And it's ridiculous, right? Because you got to be, you got to be who you are. But I do believe that you have to develop some control over the ADHD so you can direct it rather than letting it direct you. I, I can relate to that. I have never was diagnosed and I, I don't know if I qualify, but... I, the scattered brain, well, we all got losing shit all the time. <laughs> like yeah. I'm notorious. My family makes fun of me for losing my stuff right. 10 times a day. Yeah. You um, sound like you're in the tribe. Yeah. <laughs> so no, I can totally relate to that. And that's, that's amazing. Um, that was great. I have one last question yeah. for you and it's completely out of left field, but I'd like to close with this. Uh, stones or beetles? Oh, it's a tough question. You know? I have to say the stones, but it's weird. You know, I like the stones more young when I was younger th than the Beatles, but I have to say, you know, from a musical appreciation point in later life, 
appreciating what the Beatles did and their sense of melody and, and all of that musically much more. But for that sort of punch in the face, raucous thing, you know, it's like the Stones, you know, that little little sand in the Vaseline. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a band I discovered in the last few years, really, but uh, I really enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, they, they embodied kind of, you know, interesting because they basically stole, you know, black blues and, and anglicized it and everything. But, but you know, their their love of it is so obvious and, you know, and their, their focus. But, you know, that's to say nothing about the Beatles. You know, God, incredible. Well, thank you, Ian. That thank was you, great. Adam. And uh, I look forward to continuing the conversation. Yeah, man. Thank you. Hi again, everyone. Arno here. I really hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I did. Remember that you can find us online at rvltr.studio or on Instagram and Twitter at revelator underscore Until next time, salut!